Welcome to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History, where we put the pedal to the metal when it comes to uncovering the forbidden and the suppressed. Hello, I'm Michael Hoffman, and today we are taking on one of the giants of Western civilization. Oh, wait, wait a minute. No, Winston Churchill, a giant of civilization? Au contraire, Winston Churchill, enemy of Western civilization. By slow forensic degrees, we endeavor today to demonstrate that the whole Churchill pageant is a cruel put-up job, mere conjury and fraud. The effect is dizzying. Is one to be left with no illusions? We'll begin with a quote. Who are the supreme men and women of modern civilization, the human types most worthy of our esteem and aspiration? Churchill, the man proud of his gold lace and medals, of having braved death in several wars, of having understood human nature to its savage depths, proved the indispensable man when the very survival of civilization was on the line. End quote. The preceding encomium from acolyte Algis Volunus in Conservatism's Claremont Review of Books, the winter 2009 issue, reflects the mainstream of Churchill adoration. It boggles the mind that a mass murderer is viewed by most of America's intelligentsia on the right and at the center, as well as the left, as the supreme man, the indispensable man when the very survival of civilization was on the line. End quote. Jesus Christ must of necessity take a back seat when hero worship is this inordinate. When he heard that Victorian Britain was spoken of as, quote, an empire upon which the sun never sets, end quote, Ernest Jones, a 19th century London leader of the working class Chartist movement, added, and on which the blood never dries, end quote. As if to confirm the observation, in 1895, when he was age 20, Winston Churchill said of Afghanistan's Pashtun people, quote, after today we begin to burn their villages, all who resist will be killed without quarter, period, end quote, from Western civilization's alleged hero, Winston Churchill. Half a century later, Mr. Churchill held the same view toward the German villages and towns he ordered burned without quarter. In February 1945, Churchill tossed a match into the cosmopolitan jewel that was the city of Dresden as casually as a drooling Addict would torch an apartment building for revenge on the landlord who had evicted him. Michigan's Hillsdale College is one of a handful of conservative bastions upon which countless naive conservative people of goodwill have pinned their hopes for a future revival of our nation. Hillsdale is the headquarters of the Churchill Project, established to produce future leaders of his high moral caliber. We dare to interrupt the fanfare to shout, Churchill incited Anglo-Saxon Britain to destroy the citadel of the ancient Saxons in Europe. Fifteen words. Churchill incited Anglo-Saxon Britain to destroy the citadel of the ancient Saxons in Europe. With those words, we pronounce a guilty verdict for the capital crime of fratricide on the part of the American conservative movement's most revered paragon of wisdom, courage, vision, and tenacity. 
The right-wing opposition to leftist iniquity is deeply compromised by its moral schizophrenia and willful ignorance of the identity and nature of the enemy. Any movement that purports to defend Western civilization while adoring the arsonist who torched the civilian-packed medieval cities of our European heritage is spiritually and psychologically ill and doomed by that malady to crashing failure. Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill was a descendant of the English military commander John Churchill, who lived from 1650 to 1722 and who was victorious at the battles of Blenheim, Ramil, Odenard, and Malplaquet as head of the armies of the Grand Alliance, that is England, Prussia, Savoy, and the Netherlands, against Louis XIV of France. In his History of England, Thomas Babington Macaulay portrayed John Churchill as an avaricious, unscrupulous scoundrel. John Churchill was awarded the title of Duke of Marlborough for his betrayal of King James II in favor of William of Orange. Due to a dearth of male heirs, the line of descent of the Churchill Marlboroughs fell upon the women. When, in the 18th century, the Duke's descendant Anne married Lord Spencer, the family became known as the Spencers. In 1981, a scion of the family became the wife of Prince, now King Charles, and that's Princess Diana, Lady Di Spencer. Winston Churchill's grandfather, the seventh Duke of Marlborough, was a cabinet minister under the Rothschild-connected Prime Minister Disraeli. This seventh Marlborough sold much of the family's lands to Baron Ferdinand de Rothschild for a sum equivalent to $150 million today. In the last year of his life, Churchill's father experienced early-onset dementia. He died in 1895 at age 45 of either syphilis or a neurological disease. In his youth, Winston Churchill was neglected by both his parents, his alien father and his American mother, who was preoccupied with her various adulterous affairs. Like the non-believer Abraham Lincoln, the cadences of Churchill's polished prose were formed by his immersion in the King James Bible at Elite Harrow School, though church attendance held no attraction for him. Churchill harbored racist attitudes toward people of color, and leftists have made much of this while saying little about British imperialism's loathing for fellow whites, as we espy in Freemason Rudyard Kipling's poem, Recessional, and I quote, If, drunk with sight of power, we loose wild tongues that have not thee in awe, such boastings as the Gentiles use, or lesser breeds without the law, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget. Well, the boastful Gentiles in the excerpt from Kipling's poem, are the German people. The reference to lesser breeds is to Italians. See Jeffrey Wheatcroft in his important biography of Churchill, and I would call it a revisionist biography. It's entitled Churchill's Shadow and was published in 2021, and that particular information will be found on page 27. Now, let us digress for a moment into a brief history of the British Israel movement, not to be confused with the Christian identity Israel movement in the United States, although there are some similarities. Edward Hine, who lived from 1825 to 1891, helped to popularize the idea of British Israelism, 
which can be traced as far back as the Elizabethan age and the Queen's astrologer royal, the mathematician Dr. John Dee. This occult ideology asserts the preposterous fratricidal fiction that the monarchs of Britain are descended from King David, while the German people are lesser-sold hereditary enemies due to their supposed descent from ancient Assyrians. Believe it or not. The Israel identity movement in the U.S. has largely rejected this mythology. The late New Mexico pastor Earl Jones, who stormed the D-Day beaches in 1944 with his brother, who was killed there, was a determined refuter of Masonic British-Israel usurpation of the core truth, i.e. that the Caucasian race is descended from the ten lost tribes of Israel, having, among other indicators, particular linguistic marks of identity. With this knowledge in hand, we can better comprehend how, in 1939, Churchill viewed Britain's combat with Germany as among, quote, the jolly little wars against barbarous peoples, end quote. The left's notion that the bigotry of the British ruling class was confined to people of color is historically unsustainable. Fratricide must be called something other than a brother's war in order to sell it to the people. The transformation of German Saxons into Assyrians surely helped toward that objective from 1914 to 1918 and again 1939 to 1945. In other words, World War I and II. Freemasons share with the Church of Latter-day Saints known as the Mormons the classification of fellow white kinsmen as alien Gentiles if they are not Masons or, in the latter case, Mormons or allies of those sects. Their use of the term Gentile fails to distinguish between the two types of goyim, that is, Gentiles in the Bible, the benevolent aliens who were termed the ger, G-E-R, and the hostile aliens, and that is spelled N-O-K-R-I. By conflating ger and nokri, God's word is discredited and made to seem as though Yahweh taught that all non-Israelites are enemies, and this is not the case. In 1896, in the run-up to the Spanish-American War, Spanish forces under General Veroliano Weiler confined thousands of Cubans in camps called Reconcentrados. These were among the first concentration camps in modern history. As a member of a British Army observer team in Cuba, Churchill recommended the design and organization of these camps to the British High Command. Beginning in 1899, during Britain's Boer War, white South Africans were confined by the British Commander-in-Chief, Sir Alfred Milner, to concentration camps, with significant loss of civilian life. The central horror associated with the Holocaust of World War II originated decades earlier with an assist from Winston Churchill and deployed against Dutch women and children in Africa. As he would do with Dresden decades later, the chameleon-like Churchill set up a plausible denial scheme, protecting his reputation by sending letters to British leaders protesting the inhuman treatment of the Boers, which he had helped to make possible. Churchill, from his youth, was a member of the quasi-Masonic Primrose League, comprised of conservatives. His father, who founded Primrose in memory of Benjamin Disraeli, held membership card number one. In 1910, there were two million primrose, so-called knights and dames. It was a society which had owned and ruled the country since the glorious revolution of 1698 and which still dominated Parliament, in the words of Geoffrey Wheatcroft from page 34 of his biography. 
Alluding to H. H. Asquith's drunkenness, Churchill stated, It's an awful pity, and only the persistent Freemasonry of the House of Commons prevents a scandal. Churchill savored the deaths of 1,198 passengers and crew aboard the Lusitania when it was sunk in May of 1915 by German U-boats. Churchill hoped that ships from neutral countries like the United States would, quote, get into trouble, end quote. In other words, come under attack by the German Navy. He spewed forth the corruption of his degenerate soul to the president of the board of the British trade with the following words, quote, it is most important to attract neutral shipping to our shores in the hope of especially embroiling the United States with Germany. We want the traffic, the more the better, and if some of it gets into trouble, better still. End quote from Winston Churchill. Churchill sneered at the sacrifice of American lives in World War I after the British government succeeded in luring the U.S. into the conflict. And looking back after hostilities had concluded, Churchill remarked, was accurately aware of how very well the Americans had done out of the war, at very little cost. End quote. 116,000 dead Americans was very little cost, in Churchill's view. In 1927, he whined to the cabinet, It always seems to be assumed that it is our duty to humor the Americans and minister to their vanity. They do nothing for us in return, but exact the last pound of flesh. End quote. Hmm, American blood and treasure had rescued Britain from German military might only nine years earlier, and yet Churchill was already ranting his ingratitude. In 1927, Churchill considered war with the United States at least a contingency, period. In following Churchill's career, the righteous bombing of civilians for a noble cause is never far from the field of vision, and I say noble cause with a great deal of irony. Together with using food as a weapon in 1924, he declared we ought to have starved out the Germans. End quote. Soon rebellion broke out in Iraq and was suppressed by the newborn Royal Air Force, or RAF. It had come under Churchill's authority as Minister for War and Air, and he played the central part in preserving it, but its driving force was Sir Hugh Trenchard, the first chief of the air staff. In 1918, Trenchard pursued strategic terror bombing of cities, stating that the effect of bombing on civilian morale is far greater than the material effect. Trenchard decreed that the RAF strategy was to demoralize a civilian population through unrestricted bombing. Britain's Air Force, from its inception, was built on that principle, which was formulated on Churchill's watch and with his wholehearted approval. And for that information, you can see George K. Williams in his book, Biplanes and Bomb Sites, British Bombing in World War I. That book was published in 1999, and you'll find the information on page 106. Subsequently, the RAF's Vickers Vernon airplanes terror bombed towns and villages, for example, in the Indian village of Gujarnwala, and after that in Afghanistan, bombing downtown Kabul. In Mesopotamia, now known as Iraq, defenseless villages were bombed in a tactic British General Trenchard termed air policing. Some of the attacks on Iraqi towns were under the command of a young junior officer, RAF squadron leader Arthur Harris, who would be the instrument of Churchill's attacks in German cities during World War II. 
Winston Churchill espoused Air Force terror bombing as a form of control over semi-civilized countries, which will be found very effective and infinitely cheaper than infantry attacks. So writes Ronald Hyam in his book, Understanding the British Empire, published in 2010, page 236. We also know from the War Office minutes of May 12, 1919, that Churchill promulgated another heinous doctrine, and I quote, I am strongly in favor of using poisoned gas against uncivilized tribes, end quote. According to Churchill, that was a civilized tactic. On the other hand, in one of his many subterfuges, the chameleon issued a high-profile statement protesting that British airmen had rounded up terrified Iraqi villagers, herding them toward a lake and bombing them on its shores. Churchill supporters repeat these plausible denials by this arch-hypocrite and omit the diabolic statements he made from the other side of his mouth. We will see this tactic in operation with regard to the incineration of Dresden. Jeffrey Wheatcroft claims on page 107 of his aforementioned book that for the entertainment and enjoyment of the British people, in 1925 the government hosted an RAF public exhibition at the Hendon Aerodrome in North London where the audience could watch aircraft dropping incendiary bombs on a model of an African village. Churchill's infatuation with the emerging air power led him during the First World War to become an early advocate of destroying German cities from the sky. In a cabinet paper, he recommended dropping not five tons, but 500 tons of bombs each night on the cities in Germany. And that's from Churchill's own book, The World Crisis, Volume 4, Chapter 2. Though known to be capricious in the extreme, he never altered his conviction that in future wars, the obliteration of enemy cities would be a priority for Britain's Air Force. He made good on his word. In World War II, he and his American allies murdered 600,000 German civilians with Air Force bombs. It is important to note that Churchill initiated the bombing of cities. Christopher Hitchens, writing in the Atlantic Magazine of April 2002, stated, quote, which Air Force was the first to bomb civilians and in whose capital city? The RAF, striking the suburbs of Berlin, end quote from Hitchens. The Nazis retaliated, murdering an estimated 50,000 British civilians with Luftwaffe bombs. Those bombs feature in dozens of Hollywood movies, from romances to dramas and thrillers, while the bombing of German civilians is largely invisible in American cinema. Of course, the American government under George W. Bush reanimated the Churchill-Roosevelt terror bombing policy with Mr. Bush's preemptive war on the people of Iraq beginning in 2003, March of that year to be specific. Winston, who in 1939 would advocate burning alive German civilians on the grounds that this would undercut morale, had written in 1927 Nothing we have learned of the capacity of the German population to endure suffering justifies us in assuming that they could be cowed into submission by bombing raids. What then was the motive for Churchill's obsessive desire to cremate ancient Saxon cities packed with German women and children? One searches in vain unless we consider an occult motive of bloodlust, the mass killing of Amalek, just for the sake of killing them, 
The British and American modern air forces were engineered and built for long-range bombing. The Luftwaffe was not. That's just a fact of history. It was constructed as close air support for the German army. Winston Churchill directed his fiery revenge on the German people to make this monstrosity disappear. A legend was concocted by British intelligence that Germany bombed English civilians first. And I'm sure many of you have heard that many times. To add substance to this hoax, three non-English cities have been enshrined in a litany of Luftwaffe crimes against civilians. And this is not to say that the Luftwaffe did not commit crimes against civilians. They certainly did. Murdering 50,000 British civilians is a war crime. And that's what they did in, in Britain. And the litany of those uh, civilian cities are Guernica, Warsaw, the city of Warsaw in Poland, and Rotterdam. But the documentary evidence affords us a different picture. Quote, thanks to captured German documents discovered in the Russian archives, the German attacks on those cities, Guernica, Warsaw, and Rotterdam, can be shown to have been directed at military targets. None were aimed at deliberately killing the populace. Britain was especially happy to ramp up the rhetoric of German air atrocities as part of the justification for the bombing campaign that was unleashed against the Third Reich in May 1940. The RAF was attacking German cities well before the Luftwaffe began its blitz against Britain. And quote from James Holland in his article, Under Dark Skies, from Britain's Literary Review, September 2013, page 13. Because the Luftwaffe was not intended for long-distance attacks, the Germans had to improvise a bombing campaign in 1940, and even then required something Churchill certainly didn't foresee before the Second World War, the defeat of the French army, which provided the Luftwaffe with airfields just across the Channel rather than in Germany. Churchill's man for supervising the RAF massacres along rigidly efficient technological lines was F.A. Lindemann, a perverted kook who became Winston's leading science officer throughout the Second World War. This sinister personage, German-born but violently Germanophobic, had become a professor at Oxford largely thanks to his personal fortune and being a friend of the Churchill family. Lindemann was an ardent eugenicist who hated the working classes Churchill described him, however, as a great man. He became one of the most important figures in Churchill's entourage with consequences as serious as they were lamentable. Bombing must be directed to working-class houses and their inhabitants, Lindemann demanded. Richard Overy, in his standard reference work, The Bombers and the Bombed, writes on pages 55 to 56, quote, The German-born Oxford physicist Frederick Lindemann, later Lord Churwell, was recruited by Churchill and then followed Churchill to Downing Street in 1940. Lindemann took a special interest in bombing. His statistical section began at once in September 1940 to produce accurate figures which were applied to German cities to determine the areas where the highest damage could be done in terms of lives lost and houses destroyed. Why was Lindemann so committed to the idea of destroying the country of his birth has never been clear, but he played an important part in deriving conclusions. The possibility of urban destruction was the most important. End quote from Richard Avery. Slaughtering the German people was the objective, 
Quote, in February 1942, the Directorate of Bomber Operations probed the vulnerability of particular German cities to large-scale conflagration and chose Hamburg, rated outstanding, followed by Hanover, Cologne, Dusseldorf, Bremen, Dortmund, and Essen. This zoning system, developed in 1941, was applied to these cities to show the value of hitting the closely built-up city center and crowded residential areas. Attacks on these central zones were estimated to be up to 20 times more effective than attacks on the outer industrial and suburban zones. This was the background to the famous minute sent to Churchill by Lord Cherwell, that is, Lindemann, on March 30, 1942, in which he calculated that 10,000 RAF bombers would, by mid-1943, be able to drop enough bombs to dehouse one-third of Germany's urban population. Investigation, ran the minute, seems to show that having one's house demolished is most damaging to morale. Churchill was impressed. End quote. From Richard Overy, pages 92 to 93. In response, the leader of Bomber Command, Arthur Harris, was sent a memorandum summing up the opinion of various fire chiefs about the relative value of high explosive and incendiary, which showed that in almost all cases, 90% of the damage would be caused by burning people alive. Unlike the Luftwaffe, the RAF would equip itself with a fleet of purpose-built strategic bombers, Historians and engineers were brought in to analyze the flammability of German cities. A cocktail of bombs was devised, high explosives to blow off roofs and turn tenement blocks into chimneys, followed by incendiaries to light the fires and then more explosives to kill and maim the fire crews. Churchill's bomber command set the goal, are you ready for this? Set the goal of destroying 104 German cities and towns, extending from the metropolis of Berlin to sleepy Wittenberg. The result, their experts estimated, would be 900,000 civilians dead, 1 million injured, and 25 million left homeless. This extraordinary campaign of ultra-modern violence began in 1942 with attacks on the cities of Cologne, Lübeck, and Rostock. In the autumn of 1943, the IRF, the RAF, was joined by the U.S. Army Air Force. The Americans soon found themselves in the business of obliterating entire cities. It was the democracies, not the dictatorships, that made long-range attacks on the enemy home front a central instrument of war. For the Axis powers, the bomber was never a truly independent strategic weapon, Their aircraft were designed primarily for tactical ground support operations. By contrast, since the 1920s, the British Empire had routinely used aerial policing to suppress colonial rebellions. The officers who founded Bomber Command extended this technique to the European theater, culminating in the indiscriminate devastation of Europe's urban fabric. The devastation wrought by the bombers was unprecedented. And quote from Adam Tooze, T-O-O-Z-E, is how you spell his surname, to break an enemy's will. That was an article in the Wall Street Journal of February 15th, 2014, page C5. 
If they were not such cowards, our university historians would term this auto da fe an undoubted holocaust. But that's not allowed. It's not only professors on the left, the conservative paladins of Western civilization and its alleged restoration, refuse to acknowledge the Holocaust championed by Churchill, and they are willfully blind to his open advocacy of it. And we quote from Winston Churchill, There is only one thing that will bring Hitler down, and that is an absolutely devastating attack by very heavy bombers from this country upon the Nazi homeland. So saith Winston S. Churchill to Lord Beaverbrook, July 8th, 1940. You can find that in the Churchill Papers from the book The Churchill Documents, Volume 15, subtitled Never Surrender, pages 492, page 492. Absolutely devastating attack by heavy bombers upon the homeland of the Nazis. Apparently only Nazis lived in Germany. There weren't any non-Nazis. It wasn't the homeland of the German people, it was the homeland of the Nazis. And that's the old routine. Demonize a collective group of humanity, the better to destroy them. Observe the childish naivete by which Hillsdale's College's Churchill Project seeks to defend the indefensible. Quote, We know that the Royal Air Force would go on to bomb German cities and that hundreds of thousands of civilians would be killed. Relevant, then, is the Minister of State Richard Casey's account of Churchill watching footage of terror bombing in June 1943. Partway through the film, Churchill sat upright and said, Are we beasts? Are we taking this too far? Casey replied, Oh, we hadn't started it, and it it was them or us. These hardly sound like the words of a man bent on inflicting terror for terror's sake. End quote from the Churchill Project at Hillsdale College. Well, the fact concerning which the Hillsdale College nincompoops are indifferent is that Churchill the Chameleon would continue to order the burning of German cities for 22 months after the bombing of Hamburg, when more cities would be turned to ashes along with their civilian population. So the alibi Hillsdale summons to exculpate Churchill from the Holocaust he ordered countless times is an absurd travesty. It wasn't only a matter of liquidating innocent human beings— The ancient cities of Germany set alight by Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill were treasure houses of memory, artifact, art, architecture, and culture, the veritable axis mundi of our civilization, incinerated with casual indifference. Few horrors could more certainly ensure the continued decline and fall of our civilization than to uphold these two crematory directors and cadaver stackers as exemplars on the upward arc of humanity's finest hour. In a speech to the House of Commons on June 18, 1940, Churchill issued one of his orotund declarations stating that Hitler's National Socialist regime was, quote, a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of crime. 
and guilty of the greatest and most horrible crime ever committed in the whole history of the world. End quote from Winston Churchill. Well, for the man or woman who is a Christian in more than name only, this declaration is not only historically bankrupt, it's a type of sacrilege. There is no crime that can remotely compare with the most heinous of all crimes, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yet, ever since Churchill placed Nazi crimes on a vastly higher order of magnitude than the crime against the Son of God perpetrated on Calvary, then we have Calvary derogated. And this is a kind of revenge on Jesus, isn't it? His divine Holocaust and suffering have been dethroned. And in the center of history, where mankind's crime against Jesus should stand until Judgment Day, stands World War II. With his far-fetched hyperbole, Churchill, the wise seer, was furnishing the grounds for a new category of evil that required an equally unprecedented hygienic retribution, a cleansing fire by which the criminal German people would be subjected, a majority of whom, by the way, did not vote for Hitler, since Hitler came to power in 1933, and that was the last time there was ever a free election under the Third Reich, and in 1933 he did not win the majority of the vote. The terminally short-sighted philosophers and historians with whom the American conservative movement is burdened always pursue the phantom of symptoms, For them, the manifestations of the dehumanization Churchill and his partners in mass murder like Roosevelt seeded from neocon wars to woke lunacy on college campuses has no connection to the legacy of the fratricidal bombing that was perpetrated in the name of righteous revenge in World War II. And by the way, in 1944, President Roosevelt partnered in Churchill's Ausrotten Crusade by criminalizing every man, woman, and child in Germany. Quote from Franklin Roosevelt, The German people must have it driven home to them that the whole nation has been engaged in a lawless conspiracy against the decencies of modern civilization. End quote from Memorandum of President Franklin D. Roosevelt to the Secretary of War, Washington, D.C., August 26, 1944. In the name of the decencies of civilization, FDR would kill as many German people as he could, preferably the whole nation. Toward the end of the war in Europe, the United States showed an increased interest in attacks directed specifically at the German people. That's from Lee Kennett in his book, A History of Strategic Bombing, published in 1982. Now, Adolf Hitler's Vernichtung speech in the Reichstag on January 30, 1939, pledging the annihilation, Vernichtung, of the Jewish people if, quote, international finance Jewry, internationalen Finanzen Judentum, succeeded in instigating a war, is justly notorious for its evil intention, which we don't deny for a minute. However, Churchill and Roosevelt's insinuation of the extermination, Ausrotten, of the German people, and what is worse, 
their implementation of that objective through the instrument of their air forces is a fact nearly absent from the history of World War II. Winston was as keen on incinerating the Japanese people as he was the Germans. Quote, Churchill wrote a memo to the chiefs of staff on the future conduct of the war. The burning of Japanese cities by incendiary bombs will bring home in a most effective way to the people of Japan the dangers of the course to which they have committed themselves, Churchill said. It was December 20th, 1941, end quote. From Nicholson Baker in his book Human Smoke, the Beginnings of World War II, The End of Civilization. And that was published in 2008, page 460. And, and that is certainly a very apropos title. The Beginnings of World War II, The End of Civilization. Well, once again, here we have the happy burning of Japanese cities by incendiary bombs, which will teach those Japanese people about the dangers of the course to which they have committed themselves. How will they be around to learn the lesson, Mr. Churchill, if they are a pile of ashes? And Mr. Churchill, the Japanese people also lived under a military dictatorship, as the Germans did. They had no vote or voice, much less a so-called commitment to how Tojo and his generals were prosecuting the war. The women, children, and non-combatant men of Japan were appointed by Winston Churchill to burn. Any flimsy pretext would suffice. In February 1942, Churchill appointed Sir Arthur Harris to head Bomber Command. Quote, Having once terrified Iraqi and Palestinian villagers, he was now determined to terrify the Germans by killing them on a scale quite unknown before. He commenced the mass murder on March 28th with the bombing of Lubeck, a beautiful Hanseatic medieval city, strategically insignificant, but as Harris put it, more like a fire lighter than a human habitation. And it burned very well. In May came an even bigger coup, the Thousand Bomber Raid on the great cathedral city of Cologne. This was only the start of a campaign Harris described candidly, but privately, as aimed at, quote, the destruction of the German cities and the disruption of civilized life throughout Germany, and the creation of a refugee problem on an unprecedented scale. To avoid any doubt, he added, these are not byproducts of attempts to hit factories. So another alibi bites the dust. On July 27, 1943, Churchill ordered Operation, Operation Gomorrah, named after the Old Testament annihilation of the city of Gomorrah. To commence with the objective of reducing the German port city of Hamburg, population 600,000, to ashes. 787 bombers attacked the city with high explosives and incendiaries, setting it alight. A vast firestorm engulfed several square miles and burned for four hours at hundreds of degrees. No living creature could survive within the inferno, and at least 40,000 people died, incinerated or asphyxiated, as the firestorm sucked oxygen. Most of the victims were women and girls. More than 10,000 were children. Holocaust denotes death by fire. These innocents died by fire. Ergo, they died in a holocaust. 
But we're not supposed to say so. Almost no one in the West outside of Germany knows of the extermination of 40,000 civilians in Hamburg, one quarter of which were children. Though many tyrants of the past employed mass murder of non-combatants, this modern crime has gained acceptance as a wartime necessity under the aegis of Churchill, that knight of democracy who used monstrous methods to defeat monsters. Well, when enemies are the designated as the ultimate evil, then in line with the pattern established by Britain's prime minister, everything we do against enemies designated monsters, slaughter and dispossess, is noble. That's been Churchill's gift to allied posterity. When it is said that German civilians had to know that Jews were being exterminated in concentration camps, this alleged fact is supposed to justify killing them. Now, I'm not saying that some Germans did not know that Judaic people were being mercilessly murdered in concentration camps. I'm not saying that. But the notion that the German people collectively knew the entire population or most of it, I do dispute that based on empirical fact. But that alleged fact is supposed to justify killing them, that almost all of them knew. Well, we pose an alternate question then. Should the English people have also been justifiably massacred, men, women, and children on the same grounds? For it is a fact, and we're quoting now from Jeffrey Wheatcroft, page 275, quote, the bombers were stationed on English soil and lived on bases among the rest of the populace who heard night after night the roar of hundreds of Rolls-Royce Merlin engines overhead as they drove Wellington and Lancaster bombers to the Ruhr and Berlin. And the bombers' deeds were boastfully reported by day. Shortly after Gomorrah, British movie theater newsreel footage filmed by the RAF showed Hamburg engulfed in a huge sea of flame, while the commentary intoned, quote, Hamburg is being liquidated. The second city of the Reich is being liquidated. That didn't leave much to the imagination, end quote from Jeffrey Wheatcroft. So the British people knew. But with this particular incineration, it was fine that they knew. In the final decades of Western civilization, the Churchill dogma, the extermination of any people labeled the worst enemies of all time, is perfectly holy, appropriate, and commendable. So the people of Iraq, Palestine, Afghanistan, and Lebanon have been accorded similar casual liquidation by the U.S. and Israeli militaries, and there are no hundred of movies or thousands of newspaper articles to commemorate it. Churchill longed to give Hindus in India the Bomber-Harris treatment. He related to the aforementioned Jock Colville, now his private secretary, that, quote, the Hindus are a foul race, protected by their pullulation, uh, that's a word meaning fertile population growth, from the doom that is their due. So I'll repeat his statement. The Hindus are a foul race, protected by their pullulation, from the doom that is their due. So Churchill here was suggesting that Sir Arthur Harris should, quote, send his bomber squadrons to India to finish them off, period. Imagine. 
advocating the extermination of the Hindu people. The chameleon understood the epic nature of his bombing and attempted genocide. He particularly feared the newsreel scenes of the city of Dresden in flames on Ash Wednesday, 1945, packed with women and children and refugees fleeing the Soviet juggernaut. After he had accomplished most of his bombing goals, it was time for the chameleon to disavow them. The masquerade took the form of a memo, the Dresden Memorandum, written to General Joseph Ismay of the Chiefs of Staff. This is Churchill, quote, It seems to me that the moment has come when the question of bombing German cities simply for the sake of increasing the terror, though under other pretexts, should be reviewed. The destruction of Dresden remains a serious query against the conduct of Allied bombing, end quote. In the words of historian Jeffrey Wheatcroft, quote, the Dresden Memorandum might be thought the most discreditable action of Churchill's career. His words were outrageously hypocritical. It was Churchill who had favored bombing from the Great War onwards and had, fav- and had preserved the, IR- the RAF for that purpose. He who had appointed Harris in February 1942 with a clear brief to destroy whole cities. End quote. Indeed, it had been Churchill who approved the Anglo American incineration of Dresden, yet, in fear of history's judgment, he had engaged in a disgusting gambit of plausible denial. As early as 1950, two historians of the RAF, Sir Charles Webster and Noble Franklin, Franklin was an RAF veteran, wrote to Churchill asking him, among other things, about the bombing of Dresden, to which he shamelessly replied, quote, I know nothing about it. I thought the Americans did it. End quote. Jeffrey Wheatcroft, page 401. This was the man who had declared, quote, We shall prosecute the war with the utmost vigor by all the means that are open to us until the righteous purposes for which we have entered upon it have been fulfilled. It is time that the Germans be made to suffer in their own homelands and cities. We shall continue the remorseless discharge of high explosive upon Germany. Let them have a good dose where it will hurt them the most. End quote from Winston Churchill. That's Nicholas Baker's documentation, page 358, and Wheatcroft on page 504. Hitchens also noted it. Churchill's bombing was an unforgivable act of attempted extermination whose consequences continue to reverberate to catastrophic effect in the flickering lamp of history in which the inevitable crumbling of the West is the inescapable karmic fact which haunts our dreams no less than our waking minds. The final jest is the devils, whereby the right-wing remedy proposed to reverse the toboggan slide to hell sooner or later always returns to the monotonous refrain, we need another statesman of the caliber of Winston Churchill. With that epitaph, Conservatism, conservatism in America has buried itself.
Adolf Hitler, having taken the bait, replied in kind to the bombing of German cities by bombing English ones that were also crammed with civilians and historic treasures of civilization. And that was a despicable act. On December 29, 1941, the Luftwaffe bombed the ancient center of London's printing and publishing enterprise, setting ablaze a million books and targeting St. Paul's Cathedral. Sir Christopher Wren's magnificent edifice barely managed to avoid total consumption. Hitler's V-1 rockets killed more than 6,000 English civilians in the summer of 1944, a figure dwarfed by the many tens of thousands of German civilians burned alive in that same time period. War crimes are monstrous on any scale, however, and Hitler preferred to terrorize the civilian population of Britain rather than attack the airfields of the RAF, an act of stupidity as well as inhumanity. Now we turn to Churchill's career as a Zionist. At the end of the Needless Brothers War in 1918, Churchill's star was fading, along with that of Prime Minister Lloyd George. He was accused by the Nation Journal of January 10, 1920, of criminal misjudgment, having sent British soldiers to their deaths in a cause as hopeless as it was inhuman, who has added to the burdens that were crushing the life out of Europe, and who has kept his place solely because of the prestige of his class, end quote. In 1922, H.L. Mencken in America observed that politicians like Churchill represented a lower breed, a shift of the social and political center of gravity to a lower plane. Well, all that is background to November 2nd, 1917, Britain's Foreign Secretary, Lord Balfour, issued his infamous letter, the Balfour Declaration, to Lord Rothschild, stating that the British government viewed with favor the establishment of a national home for Jewish people in Palestine, end quote. Churchill enthusiastically favored the deceptively worded declaration, which cloaked the Zionist objective of supremacy over Palestine. George Nathaniel Lord Curzon, the former Viceroy of India, was a leader in the House of Lords and from 1919 to 1924, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs for the British government. Curzon asked how Balfour and Rothschild proposed to be rid of the existing majority of Muslim inhabitants and introduced the Jews in their place. He foresaw that the Arabs would not tolerate being, quote, expropriated for Jewish immigrants or to act merely as hewers of wood and drawers of water, which was Kurtzon's reference to Joshua chapter 9, verse 21. Churchill was conscious of the many Muslim subjects of the British Empire, but was disdainful of them and completely indifferent to the wishes or interests of the Palestinian people. Another evil fruit on the fig tree of World War I was the redrawing of borders by Churchill and the geopolitical illiterate Woodrow Wilson. President Wilson destroyed the Habsburg and Ottoman empires from the Danube to the Tigris to the Jordan with the mindless indifference of an adolescent vandal. But Wilson cannot be made responsible for the mutually exclusive promises to Arabs and Zionists made during World War I by the British. Rarely has Albion been more perfidious. At the center of the perfidy was the double-minded, double-dealing Churchill, who had managed to return to office in 1921 as Britain's colonial secretary, responsible for the empire's global properties. Like President Wilson, he too had jurisdiction over nation formation. Churchill carved the ancient nation of Mesopotamia into Iraq, 
incorporating hostile Kurdistan in the north and the Shiite Arab south into a completely artificial country ruled by a minority Sunni dynasty. The Balfour Declaration, put forth when Churchill rejoined the British government in 1917, contained just the sort of double-minded twist in which Churchill excelled. It stipulated a homeland for the Jewish people, and that's only right and fair, and the principle, quote, that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. Well, the Arab majority were very much prejudiced, harmed, that is to say, by Judaic immigration and more so by a national home, which was a disguise phrase for a colonial Zionist state. And that's where we have to make the distinction. Welcome Judaic people, these persecuted people, into Palestine, but not in dominion over it under the auspices of a racist colonial ideology of Zionism. So the duplicity at the heart of the Balfour Declaration was the fact that the majority of the population of Palestine were not going to approve a minority Zionist government to rule over them. They were adamant in insisting upon the democratic principle of majority rule. Balfour defied Palestinian self-determination, however. He wrote to Lloyd George in 1919, In the case of Palestine, we deliberately and rightly decline to accept the principle of self-determination. The present inhabitants were not to be consulted about the fate of their own nation. It would be decided from London. This anti-democratic swindle did not trouble Churchill. He never denied or regretted the fact that Zionism was a colonial enterprise carried out like any other without regard to the wishes of the indigenous population. Churchill hoped to see in our lifetime, said Churchill, by the banks of the Jordan, a Jewish state under the protection of the British crown, which might comprise three or four million Jews, which would be especially in harmony with the truest interests of the British Empire. In 1921, as colonial secretary with responsibility for Palestine, Winston visited Jerusalem. He was handed a petition from the Palestinians decrying the Balfour Declaration as a gross injustice. He was deaf to their pleas. He believed in eugenics, that the white Zionist pioneers from Europe and their beautiful women had made the desert bloom, creating a standard of living, he said, far superior to that of the indigenous Arabs. Oh yes, concerning the right of conquest conferred upon European Judaics by way of their racial supremacy, Churchill was blunt and I quote, the Palestinian Arabs could not be allowed to dictate the future of the country simply because they had lived there so long. I do not admit that right, Churchill said. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, or at any rate, a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, had come in and taken their place, end quote. And Jeffrey Wheatcroft comments on this. That was what was happening in Palestine, Churchill thought. The Jews were taking over, and a good thing too, since they were a higher grade race than the Arabs. At Westminster in 1937, Churchill met for a 
a long conversation with the Zionist terrorist Vladimir Jabodinsky, and the results were excellent, he said. Jabodinsky's Betar organization directed assassinations and bombings in Palestine. Now I'd like to just briefly turn to what we've been talking about here when we call Churchill the chameleon. Even his ally, Lord Beaverbrook, observed that over the years, Churchill had held every possible position on every known subject. Chameleon is perhaps too mild a word to account for the turning of his coat, which revolved almost as often as the globe. In 1935, Churchill said, the world lives in hopes that the worst is over and that we may yet live to see Hitler a gentler figure in a happier age. In 1938, he stated, I have always said that if Great Britain were defeated in war, I hope we should find a Hitler to lead us back to our rightful position among the nations. End quote. After the war, he wrote in his 1948 book, The Gathering Storm, quote, I always admire men who stand up for their country in defeat. He, and he was referring to Hitler, had a perfect right to be a patriotic German. I had always wanted England, France, and Germany to be friends. End quote. Churchill's time in the mid-1930s has been dubbed his wilderness years, yet he was out of executive office and the, and the British people, now aware of the useless fratricide into which they had been inveigled 1914 to 1918, expressed revulsion. In a vote taken in the Oxford Union in February 1933, the majority affirmed the proposition that they would not fight for king and country. In July 1935, the chameleon would help ensure another world conflict, wrote that another great war would cost us our wealth, our freedom, and our culture, and cast what we have so slowly garnered to different packs of ravening wolves. It would be like the last war, only worse. Now, what about Churchill and communism? What was the Second World War fought for, by the way? Was it not the freedom of Poland? to be free of both Nazi and communist tyranny? Were not Hitler and Stalin allies at the time carving up Poland? Let's see what happened during the Good War. Churchill conjured a fantasy in which the monster of communism was not so bad after all, a distant second on the yardstick of dictatorship and mass murder. Winston would embrace the blood-drenched ghoul in Moscow as a fellow liberator in a campaign that would be presented to future generations as the Good War. Thus were planted the seeds of destruction of Western civilization by the psychotic double mind that rescued and enlarged the communist empire while inflicting the attempted annihilation of every Saxon mother, father, and child which Churchill's armed forces could lay their bomber sights upon. From out of that homicidal dementia, no civilization can be sustained. He accelerated the crumbling of the West while dismissing consanguinity as a basis for solidarity, peace, or even sympathy. The next step down into Churchill's moral rot is his role as enabler of the communist enslavement of Eastern Europe. This was the man who, in the 1920s, shouted his revulsion for the foul baboonery of Bolshevism from the housetops, and after World War II coined the term Iron Curtain for the wall, both physical and metaphorical, that held hundreds of millions of inhabitants of formerly Christian nations in the Soviet pall. His Iron Curtain rhetoric 
was the solvent that was to clean up the blood and viscera of the millions of victims of the Stalinism he enabled. And it worked like a charm. The amnesiac West forgot that only a year before, Churchill had been instrumental in lowering that curtain over Eastern Europe. In his book, The Gathering Storm, he wrote approvingly of Stalin's show trials and purges, taking the side of the communist ghoul and asserting there was indeed an old guard communist conspiracy to overthrow Stalin. The killing that Stalin unleashed was described by Churchill as perhaps not needless. On the eve of forming Britain's alliance with Stalin, Churchill stated concerning his former opposition to communism, the past with its crimes, its follies, and tragedies flashes away. Jeffrey Wheatcroft comments, this was grotesque. Stalin was a cruel and paranoid tyrant, morally equivalent to Hitler. End quote. Churchill embraced Stalin and came to like him. And then in the pattern that is so familiar, years later denounced the monster he had helped to create. 1945 ended with Churchill's country an enfeebled and impoverished dependency of the United States with half of Europe under Soviet domination and no survival of the British Empire. Churchill's propaganda and secret intelligence services has done their best to goad America into war on the side of Britain. On learning of the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, with the loss of 2,400 American lives, Churchill was elated, quote, Now at this very moment I knew that the United States was in the war, up to the neck and to the death, so we had won after all. Well, at the moment, the Americans weren't in the war, at least not against the Third Reich, which had occupied Churchill's waking thoughts for years past, and for four years, it wasn't certain they would be. Congress, I'm sorry, four days. For four days, it wasn't certain they would be. Congress immediately declared war on Japan, but not until December 11th did Hitler himself resolve the matter by declaring war on the United States. Once more, Hitler had come to Churchill's rescue. Why he did so is one of the unknowable mysteries. One of the strangest ifs of the war is what would have happened if Hitler had not declared war, but instead said that he would remain neutral in the war between Japan and its enemies. And these thoughts, again, are from Jeffrey Wheatcroft in his important book, pages 241 to 242. The British also fought in the Pacific Theater against Japan, and of course, Churchill racially insulted the Japanese, as he had done to so many other people, quote, the Japs are the WAPs of Asia. Yet in January 1942, those so-called WAPs outfought a much larger British force in Malaya. On February 15th, Lieutenant General Arthur Percival surrendered his army of 100,000 to the Japanese. 1943 saw the discovery by the Wehrmacht of the communist mass murder in the forest of Katyn, Poland, of 22,000 Polish officers and members of the educated classes. With Churchill's connivance, Stalin blamed the Germans. The London-based Polish government-in-exile documented Soviet culpability, but Churchill told Harold Nicholson, a member of parliament, the less said about that, Katyn, the better. Churchill's government publicly accepted the Russian propaganda and the Foreign Office maintained it long after the war ended. 
So Poland had been the cause for which Britain supposedly went to war, but by 1943, Churchill had decided that it would be advisable for the communists to enslave Poland and the Baltic states as the price the Allies paid for the Soviet Union's enormous role in defeating the Nazis. Thus went up in smoke the two main official objectives of the Allies' so-called good war, a human rights crusade against a demonic foe, and the freedom of Poland. The lives of millions of Christians of Eastern Europe were now forfeit thanks to Churchill's bargain with Stalin, which would be finalized at Potsdam. Winston Churchill was as much an annihilator of the people of Poland and the Baltics as Hitler was of Judaic people. But there is no parity in the system's history books. The invisible thumb on the scale is the theology that the Christian victims are a distant second, somewhat nefesh deficient, that is to say, lacking a fully human soul. When Churchill is held aloft as an example for future statement, so too is the principle of partnership with leftists in mass murder when real politic demands it. The right wing's capacity for self-delusion would be comical were it not so appalling. With regard to Yugoslavia, Churchill knowingly appointed James Klugman, an active communist, to a senior position with Britain's Special Forces Special Operations Executive, or SOE, the branch charged with commando raids and missions of the utmost secrecy, which Klugman, who was a Soviet spy, reported to Stalin. Klugman encouraged Churchill to pimp for the communist partisan butcher Josip Broz Tito, whose numerous atrocities against the Christians of Serbia were known to Churchill. British diplomat Fitzroy MacLean, who had traveled widely in Yugoslavia, warned Churchill concerning Tito's slaughter of Christians, to which Winston replied, <clears throat> Do you intend to make your home in Yugoslavia after the war? Neither do I. Don't you think we should leave it to the Yugoslavs to work out their own form of government? Churchill testified to Parliament that Tito was in large part no longer a communist and that he had no intention of reversing the property and social systems which prevail in Serbia. Churchill took a similar tack with the communist enslavement of Romania. The terms offered by Russia to Romania made no suggestion of altering the standards of society in that country and were in many respects, if not all, remarkably generous, Churchill wrote. He proceeded to assert that the USSR under Stalin had undergone a benevolent reform. Quote from Churchill, Profound changes have taken place in Soviet Russia. The Trotskyite form of communism has been completely wiped out. The victories of the Russian armies have been attended by a great rise in the strength of the Russian state and a remarkable broadening of its views. The religious side of Russian life has had a wonderful rebirth. The discipline and military etiquette of the Russian armies are unsurpassed. End quote. The chameleon spoke those words out of one side of his mouth. From the other, on January 23, 1945, he informed Jacques Colville, quote, Make no mistake, all the Balkans, except Greece, are going to be Bolshevized, end quote. On February 27th, he assured the House of Commons that the most solemn declarations have been made by Marshal Stalin that Poland will be granted its freedom. To the skeptics, he averred, I know of no government which stands to its obligations, even in its own despite, more solidly than the Russian Soviet government. And Churchill repudiated any suggestion that there was a, a questionable compromise 
or that he was yielding to force or fear. Churchill said this about a communist empire headed by a gangster who had the equivalent of 20 infantry divisions of his own men in the Red Army liquidated. A Soviet regime that upon defeating Nazi Germany undertook a barbaric carnival of murder, pillage, and above all, gang rape. As many as 2 million German women were savagely raped by Russians, repeatedly, sometimes fatally, sometimes with the victims begging for death. With the consent of Churchill and President Harry Truman at Potsdam, 15 million Germans were ethnically cleansed from the lands where their forefathers had lived since medieval times. At Yalta, Roosevelt and Churchill signed off on Stalin's demand that the British round up and hand over to the Red Army hundreds of thousands of anti-communist Christians and their wives and children, knowing they were being condemned to slavery, torture, and death. And the facts on that case are in Nikolai Tolstoy's book, Victims of Yalta, published in 1977. Neville Chamberlain's appeasement of Hitler at Munich is etched on the brains of college students and television news consumers, but communist appeaser and enabler Churchill's belly crawl to Stalin, which resulted in the wholesale slavery of the people of Eastern Europe for whom the Second World War in the Atlantic Theater was fought, is dust in the wind. Via Colvento. Winston prophetically wrote to Stalin after an exchange of telegrams in January 1944, I agree we had better leave the past to history, but remember, if I live long enough, I may be one of the historians. That quote is from David Reynolds in his book, In Command of History, Churchill Fighting and Writing the Second World War, published in 2007, page 39. On March 5th, 1946, at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, with Harry S. Truman in attendance, Churchill, a master of narrative claptrap, both literary and oratorical, was garlanded as the greatest anti-communist of the age after he issued a spine-tingling warning about the Red Peril, the communist Iron Curtain which had descended upon the East despite the fact that it was Churchill who had massively aided in dropping that curtain upon the hundreds of millions of captive peoples in the newly expanded Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Virtuoso deceit such as that is perhaps best described as sorcery. People who swallow it are most aptly adduced as imbeciles. His shameless doublethink has diminished his star not one degree of magnitude. To this day, virtually all American politicians, whether left or right, vie for the honor of being anointed as the next Churchill. So it was that the Americans and the British fought their German brethren for the freedom of a Polish nation that ended in Stalinist chains. What is risible about the enthronement of Churchill's canonical history is the highly embarrassing fact that in the 4,448 pages of his book, The Second World War, and he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, by the way, in that 4,448 pages, there is not a single mention of Nazi gas chambers or six million Jewish victims. 
For Churchill, these events, if he even credited them as true, were secondary, a minor detail unworthy of inclusion in his sweeping chronicle. Yet the message conveyed by Sir Winston through his subtle exclusion, no lesser mortal could dare express forthrightly without incurring the wrath of the thought police. Case in point, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who did just that, the erstwhile leader of France's Front National Party and a member of the European Parliament, he was fined by a French court 1.2 million francs at the time that was equivalent to $195,000 approximately for having stated forthrightly in 1987 what Churchill deviously intimated by omission. Le Pen said, quote, I'm not saying the gas chambers didn't exist. I haven't seen them myself. I haven't particularly studied the question but I believe it's just a detail in the history of World War II, end quote. Find 1.2 million francs for making that statement. In a German court, quote, Jean-Marie Le Pen was convicted of inciting racial hatred for calling the Holocaust a detail in history and ordered by the Bavarian Justice Ministry to pay a fine, quote. That's from the Associated Press, June 2, 1999. Forbidden fact, the imprisonment, bankrupting, or libeling of the speech of men and women like Le Pen, who are branded Holocaust deniers, marked the inauguration of cancel culture in the West. But no respectable conservative scribe on Twitter or anywhere else in social media dares to say so. I repeat, the imprisonment, bankrupting, or libeling of the speech of men and women like Le Pen Mark the inauguration of cancel culture, but no respectable conservative scribe dares to say so. Newspeak's prime example is found in the strange fact that what is now the liturgy of the universal theocracy of the Western world was mostly non-existent prior to 1970. There's an important article in the Jewish Magazine, that's the title of it, Jewish Magazine of October 2006, by Sean Warsh. And it's titled, A Holocaust Becomes the Holocaust. And what Dr. or Mr. Warsh documents, the gradual appearance in academia's PhD dissertations of the term Holocaust in connection with the wicked killing of Judaic people. The use of that word in connection to that killing in Ph.D. dissertations, according to Sean Warsh in the Jewish Magazine of October 2006, there were none before 1970. There were 21 between 1970 and 1975, 97 between 1976 and 1980, and 274 between 1981 and 1985. From 2017 to 2022, we, not Mr. Warsh, but we, Michael Hoffman, your revisionist historian, we estimate there have been thousands of these mentions. Now, nothing better fits George Orwell's warning about thought-eclipsing neologisms in the important appendix to his book 1984, his dystopian novel. It's titled The Principles of Newspeak. Nothing better fits it than the incremental indoctrination of using this neologism for events that did not involve death by fire. 
and the corresponding rigidly enforced exclusion of acts of mass murder by fire, which were perpetrated in virtually all German cities, as well as in Tokyo, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki. Here's the Orwellian fraud of our time. Good luck trying to find a leading conservative who has the testicular fortitude to talk about it. I think back to the centuries of preparation which led up to, in Rome, circa 1970, the pontiffs from Paul VI onward, who succeeded in publicly contriving a new church. And in the same time frame, in Hollywood and New York, the wizards of mass communication orchestrated the ubiquitous Holocaust newspeak. And I'm not denying that Judaic people were viciously murdered en masse in, by the Nazis, by their wicked ideology, by Hitler. But what I am saying is, in terms of manipulation of language, what Orwell cared about more than anything, what, what was his lifelong vocation and campaign about the ability to think independently of that which is imposed on us. The wizards of mass communication orchestrated this newspeak that is the most potent and inviolable of all Orwellian usurpations successfully fulfilling this millennial ambition of substituting for the persecution of human beings for what occurred on Calvary to Jesus Christ. Because let's face it, the supreme crime, we are told, is what occurred in World War II, not on Calvary. In the case of Mr. Churchill, we do not employ the word sorcery lightly. The chameleon conjured as the grounds for England's air war of extermination of the German people, a charge against them of unprecedented demonic villainy. Like a magician who makes his assistant vanish on stage, in his six-volume history, Churchill made what he had proclaimed to be the crime of all crimes disappear from his pages the sorcerer's ghastly joke on his millions of clueless idolaters. William Manchester cemented Churchill's reputation on this side of the pond with his two-volume hagiography, The Path of the Lion, followed by Stephen F. Hayward's book, Greatness, Reagan, Churchill, and the Making of Extraordinary Leaders, In 1988, Martin Gilbert issued his seven-volume canonization. In 2018, the tireless scholar Andrew Roberts produced his huge peon, Churchill, Walking with Destiny. And in the same year, Gary Oldman won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his portrayal of Guess Who in the movie Darkest Hour. Yes, Winston Churchill. The enthronement of the blood-drenched saint is an industry having the quality of a self-perpetuating machine. Churchill societies dot the American landscape from coast to coast. There are dozens in which admirers regularly meet to drink toasts and exchange their hero sayings. And some of these function as think tanks and institutes with journals, seminars, and college curricula. Meanwhile, there are only a handful of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson societies meeting regularly in the U.S., The Churchill organizations outnumber them by a factor of 10. 
The neoconservative movement, or neocon, among Republicans was inspired by Churchill's so-called heroic virtues and vision, according to the newspaper The Weekly Standard, which was founded in 1995 as the house organ of the neocons. It was bankrolled by Rupert Murdoch and edited by the grinning moron William Crystal, who, with fellow Zionist Robert Kagan, launched the Project for a New American Century to protect the Israeli state by laying the groundwork for a U.S. war on its most formidable adversary at the time, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. The Weekly Standard proclaimed concerning Churchill, and we quote, the man of the century. Jeffrey Wheatcroft relates that neocon warmonger Charles Krauthammer of the Washington Post gave the annual Churchill dinner speech at conservative, so-called, Hillsdale College in Michigan, whose president is Dr. Larry Arn, A-R-N-N, author of the extravagantly obsequious Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government. Dr. Arn is a former advisor to the International Churchill Society. His essay, quote, How Winston Churchill Can Save Us Again, was one of 122 articles valorizing Churchill published by the Walsh Weekly Standard in the five years leading up to the Iraq War and the 2003 U.S. invasion. Nicholas Zenos of the University of Massachusetts attributes the concept of regime change, which influenced the neocons, such as George W. Bush, Paul Wolfowitz, Douglas Fife, Donald Rumsfeld, and Dick Cheney, to Churchill by way of Leo Strauss, the famous University of Chicago philosophy professor. At a press conference on September 25, 2001, two weeks after the attacks on the Pentagon and the Twin Towers, a reporter asked Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, quote, Mr. Secretary, will there be any circumstances as you prosecute this campaign in which anyone in the Department of Defense will be authorized to lie to the news media in order to increase the chances of success of a military operation or gain some other advantage over your adversaries? And Rumsfeld replied, quote, Of course, this conjures up Winston Churchill's famous phrase when he said, Now, don't quote me on this, okay? But I don't want to be quoted on this, so don't quote me. But Churchill said, Sometimes the truth is so precious that it must be accompanied by a bodyguard of lies. End quote. Well, Rumsfeld was quoted, and he followed up his quotation from The Savior of Civilization, by mocking the assembled press with an insolent display of guile. Rumsfeld said, I don't recall that I've ever lied to the press. I don't intend to, and it seems to me that there will not be a reason for it. He then spent the next 30 months lying to the American people about the quagmire in Iraq. The assimilation of Churchill Olatry into the Washington, D.C. Leviathan continues at an accelerating pace. More nephish-deficient serfs will be bombed and dismissed as collateral damage. And it seems increasingly likely that some of those peasants will not only be residing in Yemen, Afghanistan, Gaza, or Lebanon, but also in the hinterlands of Kentucky, West Virginia, Idaho, Montana, and Utah, where dwell deplorables equal in perfidy to the children in the homes and schools of the cities of Germany, barbecued to perfection by Western civilizations great man. I'm Michael Hoffman. Our website is revisionisthistory.org. 
I wrote a book called Adolf Hitler, Enemy of the German People. I've written nine other books. You can find those books for sale on our website. Thank you for joining me today.